Father, we are glad to come and bow before you, our King. And God, we sing, crown him the Lord, recognizing he is the Lord, he is the King. God, we gladly bow before him and we gladly own him as our King. God, we pray that that would be more and more a reality for us, that that we would live upon that and that the outworking of our life and the way we think and act and even our, our intentions and our uh, reactions, God, that it all would be caught up in love to Christ Jesus and um, constrained by his love. We're grateful, Father, that you don't just hold him before us and tell him that he's worthy of worship without enabling us to do that. God, you, you show us the glories of Christ Jesus, and then you also give us everything we need to change natures that are fallen and ruined by sin to be alive and to see and appreciate and to love what we see. And God, we do recognize that that's imperfect at the moment. And God, we do look forward to the day when sin is put away completely and we don't exist in its presence anymore and the weakness of our flesh is dealt with And we praise Him and give Him the glory that's due His name without any kind of reserve or without any kind of mixture. But God, even now, we are grateful that we are not what we once were and that we do love Jesus. And we pray, God, that You would help us to love Him with an unfeigned love and and that there would be a growing Love and a growth in grace and a growth in faith and God that more and more our hearts would be all his. God, we are needy this morning. God, we don't just those to be empty words or familiar words that have lost their meaning. God, we are needy. But you have given us everything that we need. And we bow before you. We give you praise and are grateful, God, for the rich supply that is ours because of Christ. You have in him given to us everything that's pertaining to godliness in this life. And God, again, we want to live upon it and to feast upon it, to come again and again to draw from his supply. Father, as we look into your word this morning and gather around it to hear what you have to say, we pray that you would help us to to grab hold of the truths that you lay before us and to, um, to live upon them. God, encourage our hearts. Chasten your children where you must. Open blind eyes to see. God, we ask that you would accomplish all your good purposes among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First John chapter 4. We'll read the chapter together. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. 
But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming. And now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Well, we'll be looking particularly at verses 7 through 11 this morning. Um, if you don't know, John is in Africa. So be praying for him as he ministers there and speaks to a bunch of uh, ministers there. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 11. On Wednesday nights, we are... Walking through the epistle of Philippians, and we're about to get into this wonderfully rich Christological section in chapter 2, verses 5 and following, where we're told to have this mind in us, which was also in Christ Jesus, and it describes how he humbles himself. But before we deal with that portion of Scripture, we've paused, and we're looking at why Jesus humbled himself and why he comes in the likeness of flesh. 
When Jesus came to earth, he comes at great cost to himself, great pains to himself. Why? Why such an expense? And surely the reason is a great reason, a reason that he deems worthy of the cost. And there are at least four reasons, and we're kind of walking through those four reasons. Uh, with ice that we had, it's been a little while since we were at the first one, but the first reason that we saw was that he has come to rescue or to deliver his people from the wrath to come. And each of these are prefigured in the Old Testament. And so in the Old Testament, we looked at the book of Exodus where as the people of Israel were preparing to come out of Egypt and the Passover lamb was going to, the, the, pardon, the, the, the angel of God or God was going to pass through the land and kill the firstborn, the blood of the Passover lamb was to be applied to the doors of the Israelite children. And as God passed through, he would pass over those homes where the blood was applied. And they were delivered from the wrath that was coming to Egypt. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that we are waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Romans 5.9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We have been rescued from wrath, wrath that's rightfully directed toward us or was rightfully directed toward us who are now in Christ Jesus. But that's not the only reason that Christ has come to rescue us from wrath or it doesn't necessarily explain how he rescues us from wrath. Christ also comes, secondly, and what we're looking at today, he comes to make atonement between God and his people. Or as the New Testament talks about it, propitiation. He propitiates. He appeases God's wrath. That's how he deals with wrath, by appeasing it. In the Old Testament, we see this in a number of places, but perhaps nowhere so often and so clearly as in the book of Leviticus, where again and again we're shown these sacrifices that are being made and, and the description of how they're to be made with great detail. And they're given and the, the sacrifices are made so that atonement is made. And so if you look in Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. In describing the burnt offering, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. So he brings this animal, he puts his hand on its head, and in his essence, he's confessing his sin over this animal, and it becomes a sin bearer for him, a substitute. And the priest takes it and kills it, and the blood is, in some instances, sprinkled inside the tabernacle, in other instances, poured out at the base of the altar, and atonement is made. God is appeased by this. Not ultimately, if, if he's ultimately appeased by this, then no other animal has to be offered. But another animal will have to be offered because it's only prefiguring what will come later in Christ. But you see this again and again in, chapter, uh, in this chapter, in verses 3 and 4. This atonement is made on his behalf that he may be accepted before the Lord. In chapter 4, verse 20. He shall also do with the bull just as he did with the bull of the sin offering. Thus he shall do with it, so the priest shall make atonement for them, and they'll be forgiven. 
Through atonement, forgiveness is offered and, and given and acceptance is given. And that phrase repeats itself again and again in verse 26 at the end of the verse. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin and he'll be forgiven. You see it again in verse 31. In verse 35, the end of the verse, thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, which he has committed, and he'll be forgiven. And again and again, it's, it's, it's expressed. In chapter 8, as Aaron and his sons are consecrated, they have to make atonement for the furniture and the altar itself. And then they themselves have to be atoned for before they can make atonement for others. We read about this in the book of Hebrews. We have a priest that doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself because he's without sin. But that wasn't true of Aaron. In chapter 9, verse 7, Moses then said to Aaron, Come near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering that you may make atonement for yourself and for the people. Then make the offering for the people that you may make atonement for them just as the Lord has commanded. So again and again, you see this picture of atonement being made through these animal sacrifices. But they are shadows. They prefigure something else that's going to come, the substance, which is Christ himself, who makes one sacrifice, and he sits down and he's done, because it's never to be repeated. He doesn't offer a sacrifice for himself. He offers a sacrifice for his people. And in doing that, he makes atonement. Christ has atoned for us, putting away our sins and reconciling us to God. So forgiveness, as we saw in Leviticus, atonement is made that they may be forgiven, but also atonement is made so that they may be accepted with God. Atonement translates the Hebrew word kippur. You may be familiar with the term Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Kippur. That word appears 102 times in the Old Testament. And 97 of those times, it's translated in some form of the word atone or atonement. The other five are related. But repeatedly, that's the idea that's expressed. One, if you look at Hebrew lexicons, the definitions that are given tend to take two main ideas that are both expressed by this word atonement so that the word atonement expresses the means by which we are atoned propitiation or appeasement but also the result of atonement reconciliation both of those words or both of those concepts are contained in the word atonement atonement occurs through God being appeased, the offended party being appeased, and the result of it is reconciliation is possible. The means, the result, the cause, and the effect both expressed in the word atonement. So let's take those two thoughts and look at them a little bit more closely. The first, the means of atonement. Part of the definition of atonement, again, contains the idea of appeasing an offended God, of pacifying his wrath by covering over sin. How does atonement result in reconciliation? Well, it does so by means of appeasement, of propitiation. Before we can make amends with God or be reconciled to God who is an offended party, 
God must be appeased. His wrath must be dealt with. His wrath is the expression of his offended justice. And so that has to be dealt with. Now, some people may cringe at the idea of God being angry or of being wrathful, but you have to deal with the testimony of Scripture, which is pretty clear. Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Galatians 3.10, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. What's this curse? It's the wrath of God. It's not that somebody's standing on the side of the road cussing at you. The curse of God resides upon you. The wrath of God is waiting to be expressed towards you. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul writes about the Ephesian believers, or pardon me, about people who are outside of Christ. And he says, of the Ephesian believers and of every other believer really, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's where everyone outside of Christ resides. They are a children of wrath, a child of wrath. And that's where we all were before Christ. We were children of wrath, even as the rest. Romans 5.9 says, Much more than having been now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. So again, the idea of a God who expresses wrath and who has wrath stored up is, is described here. And there's a rescue that's taken place through the blood of Christ. So God's wrath must be dealt with. How will it be dealt with? It is dealt with. It's not as though Christ rescues us from wrath by like, you know, picking us up and outrunning wrath. And so he's constantly running and trying to keep us from a wrath that's constantly pursuing us. That's not the picture at all. Wrath is dealt with because Christ himself becomes the object of God's wrath and he absorbs it. He pays for it. He deals with justice by meeting the sentence that's described or prescribed and, and, and wrath is, is done. God's wrath towards all who are in Christ Jesus has been spent upon Christ so that he has no more wrath to express toward you who are in Christ Jesus. And so it's a wonderful, wonderful redemption in this, in every sense, but in this sense also, isn't it? God rescues us from wrath. Christ rescues us from the wrath to come. How? By becoming the object of God's wrath and dealing with that wrath, dealing with justice so that the sentence is carried out and God can't then carry out the sentence toward you. Atonement has been made. God's wrath has been appeased. And everything that stood between the sinner and God that kept them from being friends has been removed so that reconciliation is possible. God's wrath is appeased by atonement, by the covering of sin. And it's the blood of the sacrifice that covers the sin so that God is appeased or satisfied. Again, Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 26. All its fat of this, this animal, he shall offer up and smoke on the altar as in the case of the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin and he will be forgiven. 
The animal is consumed. Verses 5 through 7 of chapter 4 explain what's done with the blood. Again, in that instance, it's carried into the tabernacle and it's sprinkled seven times before the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. Some of it is applied to the, the horns of the golden altar inside the tabernacle and the rest is poured at the base of the bronze altar. In Leviticus chapter 17, in verse 10, the people are told they're not to eat blood. And in verse 11, the reason is given. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Blood must be spilt. Something must die. And if you don't die, then Christ must die to make atonement so that you can be reconciled. In the New Testament, again, the word that's used is propitiation. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, speaking of Christ, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to satisfy, to appease, to make atonement. 1 John 2, 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, propitiation is not a word that we use very commonly outside of reading our Bible or maybe some theological discussion. But it's a good word. It's a word you ought to know. What is propitiation? In ancient mythology, the gods were easily offended. And so if your crops failed, people would reason maybe the gods are mad. And so they would seek some way to appease the gods and turn their favor toward them so that next year the crops don't fail. The New Testament writers take that word and adopt it. But there are some differences between New Testament propitiation and the propitiation of mythology. First, God is not capricious. He is not unbalanced or unhinged and leave you wondering, why is he mad this time? You know, what did I do? That's not the God of the Bible. His wrath is calculated and he tells us why he's mad because there's a law that's been broken and it must be satisfied. Second, in mythology, humans try to placate the gods. They try to appease the gods. But in the Bible, it's God himself who provides the means for atonement. God himself gives the sacrifice. And the sacrifice is himself in the person of his son. He sends the son to earth to die as the propitiation for our sins. He satisfies himself through his son as a substitute for us. Third, Jesus appeases God's wrath, not just by covering sin. Atonement is a covering. But he doesn't just cover it in the sense of sweeping it under the rug. He covers it, again, by receiving in himself the sentence that's justly due for sin. He actually deals with the guilt. It's put away because it's paid for. The debt is paid in full. In Romans chapter 3, 
Verses 23 through 26. Verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed, for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Those who come to Jesus in faith are justified, but God isn't only the justifier of them, He is just when He justifies them. He doesn't justify them by saying, ah, oh, we'll just forget it. Don't worry about it. He justifies them by providing Christ as the propitiation for your sin. It's dealt with. So in the Bible, propitiation is the sacrifice of Jesus that bears God's wrath to the end. And in so doing, it changes God's wrath toward us into favor. Jesus propitiated for us by bearing the wrath of God against sin. And there is no atonement without propitiation. There's no forgiveness without propitiation. There's no eternal life without propitiation. That was seen in the Old Testament figures, the types. And it's seen in the New Testament. There is no atonement without blood being shed. Hebrews 9.22, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So when we talk about atonement, we're talking about the means of atonement. How does God accomplish atonement? Well, he, he accomplishes it through sacrifice that appeases his wrath, and that sacrifice is Jesus. But when we talk about atonement, we're also talking about the result of atonement. The word atonement is an Anglo-Saxon word that means a making at one. Or some people divide the word up, if you can kind of picture the word in your mind, at one minute. We've taken people who are at odds and we've made them at one. We've brought them together by removing the enmity that existed between them. John Flavel defines it as Nothing else but the making up of the ancient friendship betwixt God and men, which sin had dissolved, and so to reduce these enemies into a state of concord and sweet agreement. A friendship that should have existed, that once existed between God and men, broken, God has now repaired. He's reduced these enemies into a state of sweet agreement. Flavel uses the word atonement almost interchangeably with the word reconciliation. I was looking at a, uh, a lexicon and uh, looking at the word kippur, atonement, and this particular one dealt with the word and gave a lot, had a lot to say, but the very first thing under the heading was this. See, reconciliation. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 11, the Bible says, not only this, I'm reading New American Standard here, but not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. 
The King James says, through by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, I mention this only to say that atonement and reconciliation go hand in hand. Reconciliation is the result of atonement. But when we speak of atonement, we are in effect speaking not only of the means, but we're speaking of the result. Both of those ideas are contained there. These are our friends that are intrinsically linked. We see this, I believe, in Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where the offering is brought that the person may be accepted before the Lord. Atonement is made that he may be accepted. Also in the New Testament, Romans 5, 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Here's the means of propitiation with the result, what? We're reconciled to God. Colossians 1.20 And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his Christ, pardon me, through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. In the atonement, Jesus became the propitiation for our sins, the means, resulting in our reconciliation, the result. And that brings us back to 1 John chapter 4. Verses 7 through 11, where I think we see something of the motive of this atonement. If we are the ones trying to atone, then we could have lots of different motives. The motive could be love. We, you know, if we see God and our affections are not tinged by sin as they are when we're lost. Uh, you know, we might from love want to appease God's wrath. But we also might just want to avoid hell. And so we want to appease wrath. We may not even have an eternal purpose in mind. It could be just maybe life's hard right now and I feel like I'm in a place of disfavor. And so I want to appease God in a very, you know, kind of superstitious way like the mytho mythological uh, gods, and so I'm looking for a way to appease him so I can be blessed now. We can have lots of different motives. But God himself provides this atonement, this propitiation, through the person of his son. Why? In 1 John 4, in both verse 7 and in verse 11, we are called as the people of God to love others. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This loving of others is evidence that we are born of God and that we know God. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And then negatively, in verse 8, the one who does not love God, pardon me, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So, you know, God, it should be evident by the fact that you love because you are known and you know this God who is love and you've been born from above that affects you. And one of the ways it affects you is in this way, you love. Imperfectly, yes, but still you love. And then John gives us some motives, some reasons to love. And within that, he also expresses the motive for God's atonement. 
The reasons he gives us to be a people who exemplify love, the first one in verse 8, is that God is love. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. How can you know the God who is love and not be loving yourself? God is love. It's a wonderful statement that he makes there, and one that's often kind of twisted and misused. God is love, but that doesn't mean that love is God. Some people try to take it and turn it around that way. But those aren't equal statements. Love is God is not what the Bible says, and it is not a correct statement. It's like saying, you know, the sky is blue, therefore blue is sky. Well, those aren't equal statements. God is love, and he defines love. It is his nature to love. It's not just his activity. There are places where the Bible says God loves, and that's his activity. And we're grateful that he does express his love so often. But that's not what it says here. God is love. It's his nature to love. And because God is love, because he loves and everything he does is defined by love, even his wrath is defined by love. His chastisement of his children certainly defined by love. It is an expression of his love to his children. Because that's who he is, those who've been born from above and who know him ought to be a people who are loving. A second motive that he gives is in verse 9. His love is manifested in us by sending his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. We see this expression of his love. He sends his son to give us life. His only begotten son, his unique son. He sends him so that we can live. That ought to stir our hearts to love. And then the third, in verse 10, we see his love and that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 10 really kind of explains verse 9, doesn't it? He sends his son so that we might live. How is it that we might live by the sending of his son? Well, he sends his son to be a propitiation for our sins. He sends his son to die so that we might live. He sends his son to be the bearer of our sins so that we might live. He sends his son to be the curse so that we might be blessed. And because he sends his son to be the propitiation for our sins, John tells us, you ought to love. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, how did he love us? He sent his son that we might live. He sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In sending his son, he sends him from love. And there we have the motive for his sending the son. God is love. From love that existed before you were created. From love that existed before you ever loved. From love that existed while you were still dead in your sins. God sent his son into the world to die as a propitiation for your sins so that you might live through him. Paul states it in Romans 5, 8 this way. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ sent by the Father, not only to rescue us from the wrath to come, but Christ is sent from the Father to be an atonement, 
to be a propitiation for our sins, to die so that we might live. Now, a couple of things. One, there is no atonement without the death of Jesus. The death of all of those animals in the Old Testament did not actually accomplish atonement. If they could, then why would we send Jesus? Why would God send his son to accomplish what an animal could accomplish? All of those animals just pointed toward the need for a sacrifice that would finally put God's wrath to rest. Christ alone is able to atone for our sin. And the death of Jesus has actually accomplished reconciliation. So there are no more sacrifices to be made. No more offerings to be brought in that sense. Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. But we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. It's been accomplished. But second, God's satisfaction, His appeasement, His reconciliation is not actually applied to you and you're not actually reconciled until you come to Him in repentance and faith. In 1 John 4, God sends His Son to be the the propitiation for our sins and so that through Him we might live. But there are those who are born of God and who know God and then there are those who don't know God. There's a distinction made. And even those who now know God and have been born of God, there was a time when they didn't know God and they weren't born of God. There's a distinction made. And He tells us here the evidence that you have come to know God and that you have been born of God is that you love others. This distinction is also seen in Ephesians chapter 2 and other places also, but Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 14 and following, Christ himself is our peace, verse 14 expresses. And he picks up in verse 15 and says that he has, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And then in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. How have you come to be made a fellow citizen with the saints And to be made of God's household. Well, it was made possible by the fact that Christ has died and become a propitiation. He has removed the enmity. But that is then received by faith and repentance. God brings regeneration. I know all of that. But you receive it by faith and repentance. Those who know God, who have been reconciled to God, are those who have responded to the call of God. And if you do not respond to the call of God, if you don't respond, if you don't believe Him, if you don't repent, then you cannot be reconciled to God. And the curse remains upon you. And wrath abides upon you. And the enmity still exists between you. And there is nowhere else to go to see that removed. 
God commands us to come and to be reconciled to him by way of repentance and faith. God commands all men everywhere now to repent. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says that he is an ambassador of God and it's as if he is speaking through him, pleading with you, beseeching you to be reconciled to God. Come to God and repent. John Flavel defines repentance as the laying down of arms against God. You have been fighting against God. Enmity exists between you and God. Even though you may have, you know, kind of mystical, vague notions about God and you think you're on good terms with him. The fact is, if you don't know him through Jesus Christ, there is enmity that exists between you and him. And if you would come to God, you must lay down your arms against him. You turn from fighting him. You turn from your sin that's hateful to him. And you turn to Christ. And in Christ, you place your faith trusting that you have pardon in him. And you gladly give yourselves to his rule. We repent. Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We repent. We believe. Romans 5, 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace. With God, peace with God is reconciliation. Well, let me move on to the next thing, and I'll try to cover it a little bit more quickly. The fourth one is the certainty of Christ's reconciliation. We were just talking about the mode of, atone, of atonement, but the certainty of this reconciliation or of this atonement. Um, we've used a number of words this morning. Atonement. Propitiation, reconciliation. And while there's some different flavor, perhaps, in each of those terms, again, both propitiation and reconciliation are, are combined and, and con contained in the word atonement. It's like variations on a theme, different parts of a song, but still the same song. But right now, I want to talk specifically about reconciliation or atonement's result. So I'm not changing themes. I'm just speaking particularly of this part of it. And the words are so closely related that we can speak of atonement and mean propitiation or satisfaction. And the Old Testament and the New Testament does just that. Um, in the Old Testament, you don't find the word propitiation. And in the New Testament, other than that one passage in Romans, in the King James translated atonement, you don't find the word atonement. They are the same idea expressed with two different words in the Old and New Testament. And atonement and reconciliation intrinsically joined together, making people who've been at odds at one by means of atonement. Reconciliation. Reconciliation with God is peace with God. Enmity removed. There's no longer any reason for God's wrath to be stirred 
towards us because the enmity has been removed. And the basis of our reconciliation is the sacrifice of Jesus. If our peace or our reconciliation was based on anything else, then peace with God would be a very flimsy thing. I mean, you think about nations and treaties that are formed to, to help these nations get along together and agree about how they're going to get along together. And nations, you know, treaties are broken and wars are started. We have something better than a treaty between nations. Or even laws. Lawmakers make laws that are supposed to promote the common good. And then you see not only people breaking the law, but sometimes the very lawbreakers breaking the law. Individuals. We get at odds with each other and we try to make peace. And sometimes that peace lasts and sometimes it falls apart. There are times when we think that we've really forgiven someone and that everything that needs to happen has occurred so that we can be reconciled. And then some little thing happens. Have you ever experienced this? They say something. Maybe it's just a look. And it's like gas poured on and they provide the match, you know, and what you thought, you thought you'd forgiven them and then peace has occurred and all of a sudden boom, it's blown up. And it's almost like you're starting all over again. We're told that Love does not keep a track of wrongs, but we don't always love as well as we should. And sometimes the weight of new wrongs added to the old ones that we are trying to not keep a track of overwhelm and peace is broken. But God does not lie. And knowing everything, He knows you and He will not be deceived by you. So there's no lie that can ever break the peace that exists between you and Him. The enmity has been removed. And he loves perfectly. And his justice has been satisfied and forever satisfied so that there are no wrongs to track in his economy. It's been dealt with. Sometimes as we try to forgive one another, pardon me, our, our forgiveness has... No basis in restitution. Things happen that, that can't really, restitution can't be made. And sometimes we just have to let it go and trust that God will do what needs to be done. I forgive you. You haven't made it right. I forgive you. You can't take those words back. I forgive you. But our sin toward God has been resolved. It's not just Him saying I'm letting it go. He's letting it go because it's done. It's paid. God has no bone to pick with the Christian. The Christian has been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus. And the Christian now is beyond all possibility of ever coming under the wrath of God again. Ever. Ever. Isaiah 54.10 For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake but my loving kindness will not be removed from you and my covenant of peace will not be shaken says the Lord who has compassion on you. One more. Number five. The bounty of Christ. Reconciliation. Reconciliation is the floodgate that opens all the other blessings of God 
toward you. Outside of reconciliation taking place, you're not in a place of blessing. You are under the curse. You may receive common grace, but the curse of God abides on you. You have already been condemned. Wrath is coming. But when you make friends with God through Jesus... Reconciliation takes place. Enmity is removed and the curse is removed and you are now in a place for God's blessings to come to you. Now, I don't mean this in any kind of health and prosperity kind of way. I hope you understand that. But God's blessing is turned toward His children. The curse is removed. You can think of perhaps a valley in which there's a terrible drought and the grass is brown and dried up and the leaves on the trees have dried up and it's just dry and dusty and there's not much sign of life around. But up above that valley, there's a giant reservoir being held back by a dam and the floodgates of reconciliation open the floodgates of that dam and the water starts to flow through the river that runs through that valley and the grass starts to turn green and the leaves start to bud out and it begins to produce fruit and there's fruitfulness and life now in a place that once was barren and dead. When God is reconciled to his children, all the benefits of his salvation flow to them. And they stand in the place of blessing. There's life where there was barrenness. Even if that life is still hard in many ways, there's fruitfulness where there was barrenness. In Job 22, Job, one of Job's friends is giving him advice. And this is one of those places where he gives good advice. It's not necessarily you know, the right advice for Job and his situation, but it is true what he says. And in Job 22, 21, he says, Yield now and be at peace with him, with God. Thereby, good will come to you. Well, isn't that true? Yield to him. Be at peace with him. But how? Reconciliation. Atonement has been made. Yield to him. Thereby good will come to you. Philippians 4, 7. A familiar verse. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. A peace that's possible because of reconciliation. This peace which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, let me give you three bits of application and we'll be done. The first is the cost of reconciliation. I imagine if you've lived very long at all, you have experienced a relationship that's been strained or broken and perhaps you have paid the cost to forgive someone or perhaps you've paid the cost to humble yourself and try to make right what you wronged. Sometimes that is very costly. But how costly must be this reconciliation between you and God that requires Him to send His only begotten Son to earth to suffer and die and become a propitiation for your sins. And that's the only way He can make it right between you and Him. How terrible must our offense be to him? How awful must the sin be 
That the only means of making, of removing the enmity and making this right is that Christ die. It's a great cost. So it's not something to be treated lightly or passed over quickly. Spend time here. Meditate on the realities of this, this atonement and, and the cost of this atonement and the blessings of this atonement. And praise God for it. Second, some relationships are more important than others. And I don't mean that there's, you know, that you should treat anyone badly. But there are just some relationships that are more near and dear to you than others, and in which peace existing is more important perhaps than in others. Some relationships are very intimate and close, and some are very casual. Um, a while back, I was going through a drive-thru at a fast food restaurant, and I pulled up to the speaker, and the person said, go ahead and place your order. And so I placed my order, and at the end of it, they said, okay, that medium drink will be so much money. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. I, play, I said food and drink, you know? And so I said, no, like trying to catch them before they dismissed me and went on to whatever else. Said, no, wait a minute. And the person on the other end said, don't you say no to me. And I was like, what? <laughs> don't you say no to me. I said, well, you didn't get all my order. Well, someone else was talking to me and I'm busy and I got all these things going on. Don't you say no to me. And I said, I'm sorry. I thought you said, go ahead and place your order. And so they really went off. And so I, I ended our relationship. I just drove off and left. But it was a very casual relationship, you know. I, I wanted to order food and they were going to get money for the place they worked for. And it was a very casual relationship. But there are some relationships you can't just walk away from like that. I mean, sometimes there are intimate relationships that are broken and, and they can't be fixed, unfortunately. They, for whatever reason, one party will not be reconciled. But the relationship with husband and wife or, or parent and child, siblings, you know, there are intimate relationships that are more dear to you than the casual relationship staying across the counter at, at a, a, a restaurant, you know, trying to place an order. But there's no relationship more near, more dear, more that you need more than this relationship. Here is God, the God who made you. The God to whom all glory and honor is due. And you owe him everything. And he is angry with you if you're outside of Christ. You can't afford to walk away from that like you walk away from you know, the person who gives you bad customer service and just say, oh, well, I'll go to the next place. There's nowhere else to go. Have you ever been at odds with someone and you just avoided them for a while? Maybe it took some time and you just avoided them. Maybe you see them coming down the street and you walk into a store. You do something just, I don't want to talk to them right now. Listen, God is the unavoidable enemy. Where do you go to get away from Him? How will you escape Him? How can you not deal with Him? You can hide your head in the sand like an ostrich through this lifetime, but there's going to come a day when you stand before Him and you must deal with Him. And you must deal with Him on His terms, not yours. And if you will not come to him by Christ, there's nowhere else to go. Do you remember in 1 Samuel, 
toward the end of Saul's reign, right before he dies, he's at war with the Philistines and he can't find any help and he's distraught and he goes to a medium to try to call up the spirit of Saul. Remember this? And he says, Saul, the, the, the spirit tells him, the, the, the medium tells him that Saul is speaking to him. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm greatly distressed for the Philistines are waging war against me and God has departed from me and no longer answers me either through the prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may make known to me what I should do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary. If God won't answer you, how, why would you ask me? If God won't help you, how can I help you? If you will not turn to God, where will you turn? Saul didn't find help from God. Saul wouldn't repent. Saul only wanted help on his terms. He couldn't find help from God. He couldn't find it from Samuel. But listen, there is one who can help. Only one. And he's willing. God sent his son into the world so that you can live. God sent his son into the world to be the propitiation for your sins. He's willing. Are you? Christ was willing to humble himself. He's willing to come in the likeness of flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He's willing to suffer. He's willing to die. He's willing to bear the wrath of God to reconcile you. And if he was willing to go to such measures, will you not be diligent to come to him? You who are strangers to him, there's nowhere else to go. There's no other hope. There's no one else who can help you, but there is a Christ. There is a Savior. You who are believers, what a privilege that we can come to him. He has made reconciliation between us and God. The enmity has been removed. We can have fellowship with the living, eternal God through Jesus Christ. We are invited into the throne room of His grace. We are invited up to the mercy seat inside the veil that's been split, rent. What a privilege is ours. In fact, all the blessings, all the benefits of His salvation flow to us. Because the floodgates of reconciliation have been opened by means of his atonement. Well, I'm going to read the doxology at the end of Jude, and then we'll sit for just a moment of silence, and you're dismissed. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.